The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. They just stare at me, watching me. They divvy up my garments amongst themselves. They cast lots for my clothes. But you, Lord, don't be far away. You are my strength. Come quick and help me. Deliver me from the sword. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I'm your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama MB, joined today by the wonderful Pastor Kuma, or Don, and a new guest, Josiah, also known as the Church of Christ the Anarchist on Instagram, where I had the pleasure of getting to know him and stealing all of his wonderful memes. So <laughs> look forward to having him uh, join us for what I already suspect will be a quite hilarious episode of, <laughs> of the podcast. So Josiah, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself, what your political tendency, um, how you live that out, because I know you're very active um, in what you do in the world, your religious background, and how we can connect with you. Sure. Um, I'm Josiah. I would describe my faith as pan-Christian. I find a lot of beauty in a lot of Christian traditions. I'm not Reformed, but I'll go to a tenant race service. I'm not Catholic, but I'll go to Mass. I have some Bible study under my belt in an academic context, but I'm no by, by no means a Bible scholar. I approach, I identify with and and resonate with Scripture more from a literary lens. Uh, my leftist ideology is generically anarcho-syndicalist. I'm a wobbly, uh, anarcho-communist, anarcho-communalist, uh, you know, ACAB, anti-property, uh, anti-state, <laughs> all that good stuff. Pretty non-sectarian in my leftist ideology. You can connect with me on Instagram at pulp underscore podcast uh, or Church of Christ the Anarchist uh, with underscores in, in between. My podcast is a serial fiction podcast in the style of the old pulps. We do everything here at Pulp. Space pirates, dinosaur riding cowboys, non-Tolkienized high fantasy, treasure hunters whose nemesis is a Nazi mad scientist who through nefarious devilry has made Nazi Antarctic mutant yetis. And you know, that sort of stuff. But uh, generally, I think my ideology and my faith could be merged into one statement. Your theology is your praxis. Your praxis is your theory. Same thing. And I had just loved <laughs> loved your memes in particular because I think that they are that pan-Christian. On the one hand, you have these uh, very recent takes, and then the, my favorite are these deeply orthodox views that are like, yeah, and let's talk about the ways that, um, <laughs> that the uh, St. Basil would rage against anyone wealthy in his church and would probably argue that the rich don't actually get into heaven, um, which is a plug for our special episode. If you have not listened to that yet, all riches come from injustice. Um, you should definitely uh, go check out that episode, dear listener. But anyway, uh, <laughs> we have a rather long passage, and I am excited to get into it with these two. So Genesis thirty twenty-five through thirty-one fifty-five. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me off so that I can go to my own place and my own country. Give me my wives and children whom I've worked for, and I will go. You know the work I've done for you. Laban said to him, Do me this favor. I have discovered by a divine sign that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So name your price, and I will pay it. 
Jacob said to him, You know how I have worked for you, and how well your livestock have done with me. While in my care, what little you had was multiplied a great deal. The Lord blessed you whenever I took your livestock. Now, when will I be able to work for my own household, too? Laban said, What will I pay you? Jacob said, Don't pay me anything. If you will do this for me, I will take care of your flock again, and keep a portion. I will go through the entire flock today, taking out all of the speckled and spotted sheep, all of the black male lambs, and all of the spotted and speckled female goats. That will be my price. I will be completely honest with you. When you come to check on our agreement, every female goat with me that isn't speckled or spotted, and every male lamb with me that isn't black, will be considered stolen. Laban said, All right, let's do it. However, on that very day, Laban took out the striped and spotted male goats, and all of the speckled and spotted female goats, any with some white in it, and all of the black male lambs, and gave them to his sons. He put a three-day trip between himself and Jacob, while Jacob was watching the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took new branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees, and he peeled white stripes on them, exposing the branches' white color. He set the branches that he had peeled near the watering troughs, so that they were in front of the flock when they drank, because they often mated when they came to drink. When the flock mated in front of the branches, they gave birth to striped, speckled, and spotted young. Jacob sorted out the lambs, turning the flock to face the striped and black ones and Laban's flock, but keeping his flock separate, setting them apart from Laban's flock. Whenever the strongest of the flock mated, Jacob put the branches in front of them near the watering troughs, so that they mated near the branches. But he didn't put branches up for the weakest of the flock. So the weakest became Laban's, and the strongest Jacob's. The man Jacob became very, very rich. He owned large flocks, female and male servants, camels and donkeys. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob took everything our father owned, and from it he produced all of his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban no longer liked him as much as he used to. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your ancestors and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent for Rachel and Leah and summoned them to the field where his flock was. He said to them, I am aware that your father no longer likes me as much as he used to, but my father's God has been with me. You know that I have worked for your father as hard as I could, but your father cheated me and changed my payment ten times. Yet God didn't let him harm me. If he said, The speckled ones will be your payment, the whole flock gave birth to speckled young. And if he said, The striped ones will be your payment, the whole flock gave birth to striped young. God took away your father's livestock and gave them to me. When the flocks were mating... I looked up and saw in a dream that the male goats that mounted the flock were striped, speckled, and spotted. In the dream, God's messenger said to me, Jacob, and I said, I'm here. He said, look up and watch the striped, speckled, and spotted goats mounting the flock. I've seen everything that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a sacred pillar and where you made a solemn promise to me. Now get up and leave this country and go back to the land of your relatives. Rachel and Leah answered him, is there any share or inheritance left for us in our father's household? Doesn't he think of us as foreigners, since he sold us, and has even used up the payment he received for us? All of the wealth God took from our father belongs to us and our children. Now do everything God has told you to do. So Jacob got up, put his sons and wives on the camels, and set out with all of his livestock and all of his possessions that he had acquired in Padan Aram in order to return to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now, while Laban was out shearing his sheep, Rachel stole the household's divine images that belonged to her father. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not sending word to him that he was leaving. So Jacob and his entire household left. He got up, crossed the river, and set out directly for the mountains of Gilead. 
Three days later, Laban found out that Jacob had gone. So Laban took his brothers with him, chased Jacob for seven days, and caught up with him in the mountains of Gilead. That night, God appeared to Laban the Aramean in a dream and said, Be careful, and don't say anything hastily to Jacob one way or the other. Laban reached Jacob after Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains. So Laban and his brothers also pitched theirs in the mountains of Gilead. Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You have deceived me and taken off my daughters as if they were prisoners of war. Why did you leave secretly, deceiving me and not letting me know? I would have sent you off with a celebration, with songs and tambourines and harps. You didn't even let me kiss my sons and my daughters goodbye. Now you've acted like a fool, and I have the power to punish you. However, your father's God told me yesterday, Be careful and don't say anything hastily to Jacob one way or the other. You've rushed off now because you missed your father's household so much. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob responded to Laban, I was afraid and convinced myself that you would take your daughters away from me. Whomever you find with your divine images won't live. Identify whatever I have that is yours in front of your brothers and take it. Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen them. Laban went into Jacob's tent, Leah's tent, and her two servants' tents, and didn't find them. So he left Leah's tent and went into Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the divine images and put them into the camel's saddlebag and sat on them. Laban felt around in the whole tent, but couldn't find them. Rachel said to her father, Sir, don't be angry with me because I can't get up for you. I'm having my period. He searched, but couldn't find the divine images. Jacob was angry and complained to Laban, What could I have done wrong, and what's my crime that you've tracked me down like this? You've now felt through all my baggage, and what have you found from your household's belongings? Put it in front of our relatives, and let them decide between us. For these twenty years I've been with you, your female sheep and goats haven't miscarried, and I haven't eaten your flock's rams. When animals were killed, I didn't bring them to you, but took the loss myself. You demanded compensation from me for any animals poached during the day or night. The dry heat consumed me during the day, and the frost at night. I couldn't sleep. I've now spent twenty years in your household. I worked for fourteen years for your two daughters and for six years for your flock, and you changed my pay ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the awesome one of Jacob hadn't been with me, you'd have no doubt sent me away without anything. God saw my harsh treatment and my hard work and reprimanded you yesterday. Laban responded and told Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. Everything you see is mine. But what can I do now about my daughters and their sons? Come, let's make a treaty, you and me, and let something be our witness. So Jacob took a stone, set it up as a sacred pillar, and said to his relatives, Gather stones. So they took stones, made a mound, and ate there near the mound. Laban called it Jigar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. He also named it Mizpah, because he said, The Lord will observe both of us when we are separated from each other. If you treat my daughters badly, and if you marry other women, though we aren't there, know that God observed our witness. Laban said to Jacob, Here is this mound, and here is the sacred pillar that I have set up for us. This mound and the sacred pillar are witnesses that I won't travel beyond this mound, and that you won't travel beyond this mound and this pillar to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor will keep order between us. So Jacob gave his word in the name of the awesome one of his father Isaac. Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and invited his relatives to a meal. They ate together and spent the night on the mountain. Laban got up early in the morning, kissed his sons and daughters, blessed them, and left to go back to his own place. So what I'm hearing is Jacob didn't get his union contract after being screwed over by his <laughs> boss until he with first sabotaged and then withheld his labor. 
Is that yes. what I'm hearing correctly? Then? <laughs> I I think that's exactly what what just happened in that story. <laughs> This whole story from the time Jacob shows up at his door is a cautionary tale about why you shouldn't trust your boss when he says, you don't need a contract. We're all family here. Let yes. Him. Yes. And they are literally family. Yeah. I'm, I'm just saying. Does this. <laughs> They're literally family in like six different ways. There's so much incest Ugh. going on here. And <laughs> Laban still can't do anything decent by Jacob. <laughs> Despite all this intimacy and closeness, Laban still gets the icky squickies when it comes to the period. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even protect his daughters from jacob who's an absolute creep i mean when did he meet late rachel like he like i'm just saying let's do the math i don't know if you did this in the last episode <laughs> but he met her and then worked to like marry her for 14 years how old was she when she, you know, i'm just saying i'm just saying and she was the younger one Jacob is a certified creep, is all I'm saying. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, he sounds like the sort of guy who would marry a woman, take her to bed, have sex with her, and then realize it wasn't the woman he thought. This sounds exactly like the sort of person yes. we're talking about. <laughs> and I don't want to shame anybody and how they get down consensually, but I'm just saying, if you can't recognize who it is you're, you're, that you're with... It creates a tiny bit of a problem. Look, it's the, sa <laughs> it's the same advice that I was given back when I was a teenager. If you don't know what you're sticking your dick in, maybe you don't stick your dick in it. <laughs> Just a reminder, I'm an actual ordained pastor giving this advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it really all starts with this line, right? That Laban said to him, do me this favor. Now, dear listener, if you have not had a boss who said, just do me a favor, <laughs> then, then God bless you. But I think all of us have been in a situation where... It's almost like I've discovered a divine sign that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So name your price and I will pay it. And like if he had actually discovered this divine sign and he actually feared the God, that the God of Abraham, why the hell would he immediately cheat him unless that was his intention from the beginning? Right. That nothing that Laban is saying is actually an authentic expression of his faith until we get to the point where God literally threatens Laban and is like, fuck around and find out. I got to say, listening to this exchange between Jacob and Laban here, listening to, to Laban giving the whole, do me a favor spiel. I've heard a divine sign. Like I've made no joke about the fact that my last position I, I lost as a pastor because of an evangelical rich white people taking over the, the congregation, basically. They took over the leadership. This sounds exactly like them. Like, do me a favor. <laughs> uh, I heard a divine sign because fuck you. Like, <laughs> Like, yeah, I've heard this story before. <laughs> like, I recognize this tune. Weird coincidence. I've also heard a divine sign, which, which was, uh, pay me a goddamn livable wage. Yeah. <laughs> and that's actually in the Bible, like, numerous times, right? Like, <laughs> It's actually not that much of a stretch. No, no. It's like 2,000 verses of God being like, hey, take care of four people. Um, Pay your goddamn workers. Yeah, exactly. And, and instead, you have people like Laban who will claim, I am divinely blessed because I have all of these things when all of their riches come directly from the labor of the people that they're exploiting, right? He's only this wealthy because he hasn't paid Jacob what he owes him. You see, what we're missing here is the fact that in centuries of translation, we've lost the fact that it's actually the Bible colon fuck the rich people. Like, we've missed the second <laughs> yeah. half of the title. <laughs> I was I was having a discussion with my my priest the other day who was like, well, we really don't need to use 
uh, Hebrew scriptures. And I'm like, yeah, but like, there isn't actually a word that refers to the Old Testament that means exactly what we mean mean it to mean every time we say the Old Testament, because you have to say Old Testament with the Apocrypha, and then, you know, what which Apocrypha do you mean? The Catholic Apocrypha, or the Greek Apocrypha, or the Ethiopian Apocrypha, or the Coptic Apocrypha? Um, or and, the Old Jewish Apocrypha. Or the Old Jewish Apocrypha. Like, there's all these different terms that you could use it, and I really think we should just refer to them as the collective, you got money? Fuck you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> here, here. I mean, I'm, like, there's there are so many direct quotes that from this passage that like I don't know you you tweak around the, the 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 turn of phrase a little bit and it could come straight out of some late 18th century anarchist anti boss shit <laughs> like I'm just saying you know how I have worked for you when can I work for my own household oh yeah like there's Absolutely. that shit sprinkled throughout the whole thing and I, I don't know if you're if you're trying to avoid I don't know cultural Marxism or whatever the fuck uh, <laughs> maybe avoid the Bible. Absolutely, absolutely. I've been working all this time so that you can have a good meal, so that you can have a good life. When do I get to actually start building my life, right? And this isn't just 18th century anarchists, right? This is the plight of every <laughs> every millennial, right? <laughs> We've been working our asses off. You told us to go to college and we'll get a good job. We went to college and now we're stuck in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. We're never going to be able to afford a mortgage until one of you die and we inherit something, right? <laughs> And Jacob isn't even saying, like, I want to have a portion of the means of production, right? He's not even saying, I want to have what I've produced, right? He goes and he allows these other lambs to be born, these ewes and lambs to be born. And instead of saying, okay, I'll take the next generation and then we bounce, I'll take all of them and then we'll go. um, He says, no, I'll just take the bad ones, right? I'll just take the speckled, the spotted, and the black male lambs, right? Those are the ones who are at a statistical disadvantage, right? Um, now, I, I'm not enough of a, a shepherd to know whether or not there's actually a statistical disadvantage to those things, but we know that in our modern sheep, if you see a sheep that isn't a pure white sheep, there's something typically wrong, right? There's something genetically inferior, quote unquote, about that sheep because we bred sheep to be all white. Um, and so, He's breeding out all the bad qualities. He's giving himself what are the supposedly bad qualities, right? And just taking the worst of the flock. And Laban is fine if he's if he's willing to take just the dregs of society, right? He's willing to give him just the worst things there, but he's not actually willing to give him what is good, right? And here we see Laban referring back to Cain and Abel, right? Where Abel offers up the best of his portion to God. And God is happy with that. And Cain just seems to give him whatever. And God doesn't seem to be happy with that, right? Laban is fine if he takes the worst of the things, but he's not actually willing to share the goodness of all of Jacob's labor. Yeah, there's so. <clears throat> this is going back to verses previous, where he gets Leah instead of Rachel. Leah mm-hmm. is the unwanted, the, uh, the, the cornerstone that was cast aside, if you will. <laughs> but God blesses her. You see fortune and blessing coming from what is cast out, from blemishes, from the unwanted. Um, Not just fortune and favor, but God personally, not personally, but God reaching down and blessing Leah. Like, you're cast out. You are unwanted. I'm going to bless you. We have that, the last shall be first theme of of scripture coming through here. As I'm listening to this, I'm like, yeah, the whole first shall be last, last shall be first thing. But I also do want to raise a point that I don't want us to forget 
Jacob's not exactly a hero here either. Like, he's not perfect. Like, with respect to his relationship with Laban, yeah, he's the one who's getting fucked here. So we can't deny that. But throughout the larger narrative, he's not a perfect person. But he's still the one through whom the narrative proceeds. So you have an imperfect vessel for a perfect narrative, which I think is a highly important take here that we've got a broken backwards misogynist can't tell who he's fucking in the middle of the night sort of person uh and he's still the one through whom the divine message is continued and the fact that he is kind of more than a little misogynist even for his day like kind of a little bit stupid because and again i can't stress this enough this was a man who was a full evening into fucking a woman before he realized it wasn't the one he expected um, <laughs> I cannot stress that enough, but this does not delete the inequity and the injustice of the way he's treated by Levon. So this is something when I'm talking with my congregation, I encourage them to hold multiple things in tension at the same time. It's really easy to want to look at this and have good guy, bad guy mentality. Like Levon's an asshole. There's no getting around that. But Jacob's not exactly what we would say a good guy either. And having these two things in tension to realize that you can be a bad guy and still be a victim. Uh, or alternatively, you can be a good guy and still be an abuser. Like all of these things are both functionally capable of existing at the same time. And the way we wrestle with that nuance says more about who we are as people than the way we accept the black and white that, uh, shall we say, certain Bethel class evangelicals would love us to accept. <laughs> that first shall be last is the story of Jacob, right? It is just consistently happening throughout the story of Jacob, where Jacob is the second born, he is the lesser one, and yet that is the one that God chooses to raise up. He is the one who gets the blessing. He's the one who gets the inheritance. Um, but he's also the one who get, gets a lot of suffering because his trickster mentality gets him into trouble here, right? And again, that first shall be last, that although Leah is the unrejected one, she is the one through whom all the Jewish people eventually descend, right? It's her child, Judah, that become the name of the Jewish people, right? When the kingdom of Israel and Judah separate, it is Leah's descendants who carry on the mantle of uh, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And so there's all of these other things that are going on here where the first shall be last that incorporates so much of this story. Jacob is getting the worst part of this, but he is blessed. Uh, he's getting supposedly the weaker lambs, but actually they become the stronger. Uh, Leah is supposedly the weaker sister, but she ends up being the one who gives birth to far more children than her sister. There's a certain uh, trickle-down oppression um, that you can see here. Laban, Laban screws over Jacob. Jacob is a misogynist to his wives. His wives exploit the labor of their servants and take credit for it. Wealth doesn't trickle down here. Oppression does. Um, and you exactly. can see that. I love that that way that you put it, that wealth doesn't trickle down, but oppression does, right? And we see this commonly happening all over the place where hurt people hurt people, right? And it, it affects the next person. And in these stories, God is totally capable of saying, you were the jerk in that last instance, but in this next one, you're the victim that I need to stand up for, right? And so um, I think that in... You know, when you look at moralistic stories like The Good Place, right, I think where oversimplifies that case in particular, um, not to do any spoilers for anyone who still hasn't seen the last season like me, um, <laughs> is that morality is not just to be considered on a perspective, on a spectrum of, of exactly how it's going. Some of us have less, less options than others, right? But how we choose to treat the people below us 
is the biggest indicator of how moral we can be. For those of you who don't know me, which I'm assuming is most everybody listening, one of the many, many things I'm doing right now is I'm doing my doctoral studies. And we were recently discussing kind of hardcore philosophy and things like that. And one of the things that came up was the issue of the trolley problem. And one of the authors we're discussing in class is like, okay, how do you make these sorts of ethical decisions? And my response to it was kind of basically what I think you're saying there already is that if you're sitting on the trolley and you have the choice between staying on one track and killing three people or switching it yourself and going to the other direction, the Christian decision uh, isn't to make a choice with respect to where the trolley is going. It's to turn around and murder the bastard who made that trolley go in the first place. <laughs> like, that's what it is. And when we try to strip these things of context, we lose the fact that the whole point of the Christian social ethos is not to bind ourselves to abstractions and is to focus on doing good for people in the moment. We don't make choices that hurt. This is one of the harder things, is we don't take responsibility for choices that were made for us. So in the case of the trolley problem, for example, yeah, like, we don't do either of those things. We either throw ourselves on the tracks to stop the train or we turn around and go after the bastard who started this whole thing in the first place. Those are our decisions. And to, to piggyback on what you were saying earlier, I, I was also reminded of a comment that was basically the same thing as what you were saying, that trauma is contagious and prosperity is not, which is the exact opposite of what a capitalism is. And I have to be very, particularly American-style capitalism, the belief that prosperity catches and that your problems are your own is literally the opposite of how humans work. And so with these two factors in mind, like, yeah, obviously none of this pseudo-philosophical stuff makes sense from a Christian perspective because we don't believe any of that shit. <laughs> when the system is built on oppression, it is incumbent upon us to live outside the system or destroy it. And that's what we see Jacob doing. He's like, fuck it, I'm out. This isn't working for me. And it's our it's our responsibility to destroy the problem or live outside, live off the tracks. Now, I, I got to credit Jacob with coming up with a unique way to get out of the situation, notwithstanding the, my skepticism about him inventing Mendelian genetics several thousand years early. <laughs> um, like that, that seems a little historically sus here, but... You know, we'll call it divine inspiration. What the hell? Why not? Um, but still, he like he identifies a way out that is consistent with the Christian ethic of like, look, I will sacrifice and I will do the right thing and I will not. I'm not going to fuck you up, uh, even though I maybe kind of should. Uh, but I'm not. You know, I'm not going to do it. You know, I, I I have established a way out of here that is good for everybody. You don't have to be pissed about this. And this is de-escalation at its finest, which, you know, as a Christian pastor who pretty much makes his living theologically fist-fighting evangelicalism on a day-to-day -day basis, de-escalation is the fucking key here. And he does it perfectly. And this is, like, we talk about interacting with your, your kind of capitalist types and your evangelical types, who are basically the same thing in America, um, who, who just want more and more and more and more and more is de-escalation to them reads as aggression. And there's a kind of uh, psychological looping that happens here as we go on to it, whereas we get into the second part of this, and Laban's like, I don't mean to skip ahead here, but Laban's like, you have run off my daughters, and he's using all this military analogy, even though he's the guy who showed up with a whole bunch of fucking swords. Um, like, that immediate, <laughs> that immediate turn towards, you know, Ch -ch -ch, stop threatening me! 
You yes. know, it's the cop mentality. <laughs> like, it's literally the American policing mentality. I have nine different guns pointing at you, and you have a shoe. Stop threatening me. I, I like that you brought up the sacrifice and de-escalation, because I think you both brought up the trickster archetype. And, you know, the, the trickster theme here starts with the birthright uh, story and continues, you, you see Jacob meeting the, his his trickster nemesis, Laban. And then also, what I love about this is that there's there's agency at some point given to the women. I mean, I, I'd, I'd really like to see somebody interpret the story from Laban's wife's point of view, because eh, I don't know, I, I haven't heard anything about her in the story. But I love that first Leia takes on the trickster archetype as well. She's like, all right, this is how we're playing this. Let's go. Let's play ball. And then we see uh, Rachel at the end finally joining the game. But the way the, they employ the trickster archetype is escalation of, of all of this. And that escalation is a perpetuation of the fall. But it's also important to note that I don't want to employ any anti-Semitism here in, in transposing Christ onto this, but we see Christ as a trickster archetype as well. But he uses him, uh, Christ as a trickster works towards liberation. Whereas we see this, these trickster archetypes interacting in a way that perpetuates sin and the fall and greed and mimetic desire. And the one point where we see de-escalation is sacrifice, which is, you know, from a Christian perspective is foreshadowing the sacrifice of Christ that breaks the cycle of mimetic desire. Yeah, I want to I want to piggyback on something you were saying there too because it literally just jumped up. Particularly when you're talking about the agency of the women in the story, because um, this is something that always, always I'm looking for and that always jumps out at me from these readings. Uh, for those of you, dear listeners, who do not know, uh, because I don't plug it constantly, is apparently what I'm hearing. Uh, I have my own online church community that I pastor, as well as our own series of podcasts and YouTube videos. And we're also working our way through the book of Genesis. And we have been having so much fun identifying the places and means where women in the story are like, fuck this, and seize <laughs> an agency that does not belong to them. Uh, spoiler alert for jumping totally far ahead. Right now, my own uh, community, we're actually working through the story of Tamar and Judah down the line. Uh, and the... We did the whole Onan story, which, by the way, if you ever want to tune into an episode that is just constantly me making euphemisms for masturbation, that's a perfect story to, to listen to. Because, <laughs> boy, do I have a million of them. Uh, but the story of what she does later is another great example of kind of a woman seizing the legal agency that she doesn't have by means of sometimes trickery, sometimes direct action. And then here, I want to draw our attention to 3115. Why have we been counted by him as strangers? For he has sold us, and he has wholly consumed our money. Now, for those of you who don't know, because it's been a while since I've been on the pod, I am constantly referring to Robert Alter's translation of the Bible, which is flush with some wonderful notes and is sadly extremely expensive, um, but is absolutely some of the best Hebrew scholarship on the Old Testament that I've got. So I want to draw, draw attention to his notes on, on that, that comment there in verse 15. For he has sold us and wholly consumed our money. And I'm just going to go ahead and read this straight because it's, I can't say it better. In a socially decorous marriage, a large part of the bride price would go to the bride. Laban, who first appeared in the narrative 
in chapter 24, eyeing the possible profit to himself in a betrothal transaction, has evidently pocketed all of the fruits of Jacob's 14 years of labor. We know this, of course, because, like, Jacob's pissed about this, but here's the piece. Uh, his daughters see, thus fee, see themselves reduced to chattel by their father, not married off, but rather sold for profit, as though they were not his flesh and blood. So he was supposed to give them a piece of the money. He didn't just take from Jacob. He took their money, too. There was a certain degree of monetary agency that he was supposed to give to them. And he's like, well, fuck it. You're mine to sell off. Like, I'm going to keep that money. So there's an injustice that's being done here, and it's not just uh, to Jacob. It's also to Laban's daughters. And so that leads us into their seizing of the gods, which, you know, the household gods, first off, they stole a thing. And I, I love how when evangelicals that I know read this passage, they're like, aha, they did a bad thing and stole the thing, even though Jacob said he didn't know. They knew they still did the crime. No, fuck no. God at no point ever says this was a bad thing. And what you need to remember is that these are some serious gold and or gold-plated idols. And she took them and jammed them under her arguably bleeding backside, sat them on a pillow and said, nope, these are mine now. You owe me shit and I'm going to take it. The women <laughs> were literally seizing what was theirs. There is a huge display of agency that's happening here. And it often goes unremarked when we when we discuss this in church. We're always looking at even some of our most progressive takes on this, we're looking at the interaction between Jacob and Laban, and we miss the fact that as those two are duking it out, as they rightfully should be, that in the background, you've got the women saying, oh, fuck these penis havers. We're going to take what's ours. <laughs> the whole story is reclaiming the means of production by either sabotage or stealing from your boss or entering into a contract through sabotage, stealing from your boss or withholding your labor. But, um, I, you know, I, it's interesting. I, you know, I grew up in a conservative context and, you know, the whole thing about the stealing of the idols was, it was always an anti-pagan reading. It was like, yeah. Oh, see, see, this is why things aren't working out for them. They stole the idols instead of worshiping Yahweh. And, and, you know, what I'm starting to realize as I, read through the Bible through a leftist lens now, anytime there's some onanistic conservative horseshit interpretation, Ooh, I like that. there is some sort of underlying liber liberative reading or allusion to class warfare that is being obscured every goddamn time. I want to drag us back to the text a little bit to say that some of the things that are going on here subtly, I think, are just so interesting. Um, first off, the fact that Jacob works here for this for this flock for seven years, for seven years, and for six years. Right? What does that symbolize? Well, three is a very holy is a very special number in in Judaism, um, in ancient numerology. Right? You often see things happening in threes or in multiples of threes. Right? That life began on Earth on the third day. That life begins on the Earth. Right? On the sixth day, humanity begins. That's a three of a three. Right? But three is often thought of as like the thing that brings together uh, these extremes, right? But three is often this number of like unity of bringing things together of, of uh, all those sort of things. And seven is a, is a number that means complete, right? It is fully complete. And so if you're doing something for seven years, three times, it is like completely done. It has to be totally. And here Jacob stops one year shy of that to say, no, 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 no. 
you are going to have completely screwed me over. <laughs> like, this is the majority of my life at this point that I have spent as your, as your work slave. I have gotten nothing out of this. I've spent most of my life putting it into this. And now I'm expected to walk away with nothing or, or um, continue to work here for even longer after having paid all of this wealth to you, right? Cutting off his pension the year, the, the year before he retires. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Look, man, we ain't living to 500 anymore. This is a decent amount of time. Give up. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the other thing that's going on here is, you know, why, you know, the evangelicals, why, why are we laughing at the evangelicals for saying? Oh, lots of reasons. <laughs> well, yes. But why are we laughing specifically in this story for, you know, the idols, the, the evangelicals saying, oh, it's the idols and that's why they got in trouble. That's why they weren't blessed. Well, read the story. Right, right here at the end, Laban signs the treaty not just by the God of Abraham, but also by the God of Abraham's brother Nahor. Right, they're probably two different gods. Now, it's possible that it's the same God, but why does Laban have these idols of other gods if his God is the same God as the God of Abraham? Right, this is not written in a time when the people of Israel consider that their God is the only God in the universe. Right. We've talked before about the difference between polytheism, uh, monotheism, and monolatry, right? And monolatry is the idea not that there are only one God, but instead that there's only one God that's worthy of worship, right? But this is written in a context. Now, the whole of Genesis is redacted in a context that is impressing upon its readers monotheism, but it is not universally redacted to look like that, right? There's doesn't seem to be anything wrong within the story with them stealing the idols of their previous gods, right? And there doesn't seem to be any problem that the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor seem to divide the land so that the God of Abraham won't go into the God of Nahor's territory and vice versa. There doesn't seem to be a theological problem with that for these authors. People who have much more um, scholarly chops than me could probably correct me on this, but would recognition of each other's gods be also a recognition of respect and agency, you know? And what I'm get, getting at here is Laban has been disrespecting and Jacob and literally everyone else in, in, in Jacob's, uh, now Jacob's family. He's been disrespecting Jacob. He's been disrespecting his daughters. He's been disrespecting his grandsons, even though apparently he wants to see them before he, they leave. But it is after they've fought for this recognition, they've reclaimed their rightful wages. They've withheld their labor, and here he makes this this pact, this you know, I don't know, contract or I don't know, agreement that has been bargained uh, collectively. I don't know, whatever. Um, and now he's he recognizes his God as an indication that he also sees him as an equal. Um, would that be? too far of a stretch in how we integrate the the views of, of polytheism and, and what that means in the contract that they sign or uh, put rocks on at the end of the story. Yeah, no, and, and this is actually where um, the difference between monolatry and henotheism actually come in, um, which I will explain because I am a nerd. Um, but go ahead, Don. <laughs> the, way, the way I've always understood it, and I'm going to do the Jesus thing and put it up as a parable here, yeah. is... Imagine a fight between the the biggest, weakest, like nerdiest kid, basically me, in element in the elementary school, and he's getting the shit kicked out of him by 
the biggest, meanest bully in the world, and the teachers are not really doing anything. And so the big, mean bully says, well, my dad's going to come here and is going to really make some shit for you. And his dad comes over, and he's a moderate-sized alcoholic who likes to beat on his kids and has, a, you know, you know the type. And he's strutting up, and he's like, yeah, I got no compunctions beating up a little kid. And we're like, oh, oh, shit. From the perspective of that little nerd, you're looking at the alcoholic dad being like, yeah, this guy's a problem. But then the nerd's dad shows up and he's a world-class MMA fighter. Like, you know, that that degree of interactions is pretty much exactly how I view the interaction between Jacob and Laban and Jacob and Laban's various gods. Like, yeah, sure. Um, like, from Jacob's perspective, yeah, I'm going to show some respect to, to your god. He's definitely bigger than I am. But also, check out the big guy. Uh, yeah, so... <laughs> Not that afraid. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, your drunk ass dad could probably t swing a punch or two, and I wouldn't much like it. But look who I've got in my like your, your guy. Your guy might land a hit or two. My guy pushing the fucking ground. Okay, so like, slow your roll there, Laban. Slow your roll. <laughs> the difference between monolatry and henotheism is that monolatry is the idea that only one of the gods is worthy of worship, right? Whereas henotheism sees that there are there's a pantheon of gods and you can, henotheism basically says you can worship any of them within the right pantheon and you're fine. And so, whereas Jacob is a monolatrist, he recognizes that only his God is one worth worshiping. He's not going to disrespect his wives by saying you can't worship your gods versus Laban, who is much more of a henotheist and says, okay, I acknowledge that your God is here, right? And can do stuff depending on the circumstances, right? And and it seems like right here, he is concerned about what this guy can do. But I think that you're right, Josiah, that it's much less that he's concerned with what God can do, and much more concerned with what Jacob and his daughters have actually done by taking all their flocks, taking all their, all their people, and threatening to leave, because Laban realizes it's more important to me to have some relationship with my kids than to keep screwing them over to try and get another year out of their contract. The last thing that I am really going to highlight here uh, from the text is uh, in verse 47 and then into verse 49, this annoying differences of the names of what they call this stone. And uh, Laban called it Jigar uh, Sahadutha. And that is actually in a different language. It's not in Hebrew, so I don't know how it's pronounced. Um, it's Aramaic. It's Aramaic. Yes, exactly. The, the Babylonians had already conquered this area by the time that this story is being told, right? Um, versus Jacob calling it Galid, which is Hebrew for mound of witnesses. Both words mean mound of witnesses. And then Laban in 49, Laban comes back and says, he also named it Mizpah or to be seen, right? Or to see, right? And I think it's called that because Throughout the Bible, we continuously see the importance of seeing something and the fact that God cannot be seen, right? You can't look at God and see God, but you can look at humans. And when you look at humans, you often raise their dignity. You often raise their status. Jesus looks at the woman who has been hemorrhaging for seven years, and when he does that, she is healed, right? That he fully sees her as a human being, and thus her life is transformed. Here, I think Mizpah is coming here because. Jacob is being seen for the first time in his life, not as some whipping boy that I'm going to make fun of and, and 
drag around and make him work for 14 years for my daughters and then six extra years. But he's actually being recognized as a person worthy of being seen and recognized as an equal. Exactly what you were saying, Josiah. In that same vein, it's a reversal of how we talked about the trickle-down oppression. So Mm. Jacob is now seen, but also the women are now seen where Mm. normally they wouldn't. Like, they've been treated as property, but they also have agency now. They take ownership of the means of production just as Jacob. Yeah, it's a it's a reversal of the trickle-down oppression. All right, so I'm, I'm going to throw a totally different take here, just utterly different on the on the use of, what is it, uh, Yag Sarutha versus Galat. I, I got a totally different read on this, and I, I think you guys might appreciate it. So some of the things to know about kind of Hebrew and Aramaic here is Aramaic is a different language, but it's different from Hebrew in the sense that like Mandarin and Cantonese are different. They're very, very, very close functionally to the extent where like Hebrew and Aramaic are typically both represented with Hebrew script. Well, at least Imperial Aramaic, sometimes some of the older Targoon dialects have their own kind of script to it, but even that script has a huge overlap with like Paleo-Hebrew and stuff like that. So like they're hugely interconnected. Um, So the fact that you've got Labani here deliberately using the Aramaic, he didn't have to. Like, and even in using the Aramaic Yegar Sarutha, like he could have just said the Aramaic version of Galet. Like he didn't have to say the big long thing. And so piggybacking back on our old understanding of Laban as the ultimate corporatist here, like my read on this is the minute he says that, the linguist in me is feeling, oh, you're not being fired. You're being moved to a differently functional employment position. You're being promoted to customer. Like I'm hearing corporate speak through the fucking wazoo with this one. He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to say it my way. And my way is the right way, even though it's total linguistic bullshit. We want to value your skills at a different company that you will now have to find. Yes, exactly. Like this is a hundred percent to me reading as corporate speak. Like, this is not like a different <laughs> religious choice. Like, the languages are so similar. He could have and probably should have just said Galat himself. Like, the words exist in both languages. They're so damn close. He did not have to do this. Instead, he's like, no, no, we're going to say it's this thing, which means exactly the same fucking thing, but uses 10 times more words because I want to sound better. Which is another <laughs> way that Jacob takes ownership. Um, and, and this is something that happens all the time in my shop stewarding is corporate speak will use all these n- nice long words that don't mean jack shit. And then you cut through it with like, oh, that sounds like you just want to give us more work. Oh, no, it's not that. It's just that we want to include you in the production process. No, no, no. You just wanted to have us do more work. That's what that's what that's what's going on here. Yeah. And that's what Jacob <laughs> does here. He's like, no, nah, fuck that shit. I'm calling it Mizpah. Done. <laughs> the other aspect of this is is corporate speak, absolutely, but it is bringing it back to an imperialist context, right? Aramaic is the language that the people of Israel spoke after they were conquered, right? And so this word is probably something that is coming in much later on in the story, right? There's probably some other word. I, I, I don't know why it's here, but... To the reader, it's supposed to sound like you're speaking in Hebrew to me, and suddenly you have this other word, right? Um, it, it, it'd be like if you were talking about New Amsterdam, right? And you were going along and excited about New Amsterdam, and then suddenly so, someone says, yeah, so I'm going to New York. And you're like, wait, what do you mean? Oh, 
this is clearly indicating that this has been conquered, right? This has been changed, that you are an outsider to my context where this place is called New Amsterdam, right? Uh, we probably have much better examples with some Native American places. That's exactly what it sounds like, right? You're listening to this story in Hebrew, and then suddenly there's this foreign word that you're like, oh, okay, that's the conquerors. Those are the outsiders. Those are the bad guys, right? And this story is about how the Babylonians here instantiated in Laban will screw over the people of Jacob, right? Screw over the people of Israel, who are the people of Jacob, right? Israel's uh, Jacob's other name, that they go and they work and they do all of this hard work. And just when they're about to complete their third cycle, suddenly they're sent back and they would hear that in this context, they would hear this strange word and go, Oh, okay. That is the imperialistic force that has been screwing us over. And we responded by being tricksters, by being wily, by outsmarting, by by doing our best, and then God blessing us in the midst of this terrible and difficult thing. And that's the only way that we were actually able to survive this. Dear listener, if you would do me a favor and go to... You know, there's a guy who wore a turtleneck and he started a company and he screwed over most of us. Um, anyway, it's now really important that you go to his website and tell everyone how great our podcast is. So yeah, go over to uh, the Word in Black and Red, uh, Unfinished Community, and Pulp! It's an exclamation point. And go and rate them all five stars so that more people get to hear uh, good conversations like this and participate in communities that actually value them. Now, past Micah, take it away. Thank you, Future Micah, and of course you, our wonderful listener. Together we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. And thank you, past Micah. Now go. And use your trickster knowledge to form community so that together you can stand up to the bosses that say, just do me a favor. And together, be seen for all that you are. Shalom. Jigger Sahadutha. Jigger Sahadutha. But Jacob call it Galid. Yeah, why don't we just fucking call it Galid then? <laughs> Laban said, This mound is our witness today, and therefore he too named it Galid. Oh, yeah. He's like, that's way fucking easier. <laughs> why does he have to be such a dick? <laughs> oh, and he also named it Mizpah because he's a <laughs> he, named, he also named it Mizpah. This is the best reading. <laughs>